Good morning, Calvary, Quakertown. It's good to have you with us this morning. As you all know, or you've just seen in the video, we're in a series that we're calling For Everyone, and we're making our way through Paul's letter to the Romans. And I've reminded you a couple of times, this letter is different than the other letters Paul writes because Paul's writing to a group of Christians in Rome, but he's never visited Rome and he doesn't know most of the people in that church. So he's writing to introduce himself and his message to them because he would like to shorten the supply chain because he wants to go west. He wants to continue what Jesus started all the way to Spain. But he needs a base of operations kind of halfway to Spain from where he is in Israel, Jerusalem, Antioch. So he writes this letter to Rome to introduce himself, his message, with the goal setting up a new base of operations as he continues what Jesus started all the way to Spain. Well, we're coming to chapter five, actually the second half of chapter five, and we're gonna use as our theme, and you'll see hopefully how this makes sense in a few minutes, we're gonna look at a comparison and a contrast. Paul compares and contrasts two different groups of people and two individuals that represent the two groups of people. And that, that's what we're going to do. But in order to get our minds engaged, and before we get to the second part of Romans 5, let's do a little bit of review. I mentioned a, a simple little outline uh, last week, and you may want to jot this down somewhere in your Bible or put it on your note tab on your uh, phone or something. You can easily understand the first half of Romans under three heads. The first three chapters are all about the problem. And why does Paul spend so much time talking about the problem? Because the good news becomes great news if you understand the bad news. But if you don't have any idea of the bad news, the good news is kind of ho-hum news. But if you understand our predicament, the good news is great news. So Paul goes to great lengths, like two and a half chapters, laying out the problem. And he summarizes the problem in chapter 3, verse 23, when he says, all have sinned. Every single last one of you have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are alienated from God, separated from him, and living out the results of our rebellion and separation. And we are absolutely powerless to do anything to be reconnected with God. Now that's a problem. Well, Paul then in the middle of chapter three shifts gears and begins to talk about the solution. And in a nutshell, here's how it goes. Our problem has come because of our performance. We've not performed according to what God says we should do. Well, we then naturally want to perform differently. But a performance plan never cuts it. And God knows you can perform perfectly from here on. Well, we really can't. But if you could perform perfectly from here on out, your performance in the future can't erase the problems of the past We've got a major problem and we're in a big predicament. But God has given us a gift and the gift is the grace plan. Not the performance plan, but the grace plan. Now you have to admit that your performance won't quite cut it. It's not even close to cutting it. But if you admit you can't do it and you accept God's gift of grace and forgiveness through Jesus, that's what does it. And so our faith needs to be removed from our performance plan, put into Jesus, the grace plan, and the transaction happens. That's the solution. What we could not do through our doing, God gave us in a gift, and that gift is his son. 
That's the solution. Then beginning in chapter five, Paul says, now let me just spin out for you a few of the benefits or the results, the consequences that come from being on the grace plan. It's more than you may think. It's over the top wonderful. The benefits, the results, the consequences, and that got us to chapter five. Well, how are we gonna put it together then? Well, today we're gonna talk about reconciliation. And I wanted to tell you, that even though we didn't use that word too much last week, that actually is what all of chapter five is about. But the first couple verses that we looked at in detail last week tee up for us the reconciliation theme. So here are the first two verses from chapter five. Think reconciliation as I read them. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, change of plans, we have peace with God, past tense, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access, present tense, by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope, future tense, of the glory of God. You may say, Charles, the word reconciliation isn't in there. Yeah, but can't you see? Alienation lies behind those two verses. Why do we need peace with God? Because we're at war with God. Why do we need access? Because we're alienated and separated. Why do, we, why do we need hope? Because our performance plan has put us in a guilty position and we can't work our way out of it. So reconciliation is necessary. And Paul even explains in the beginning part with that triad that reconciliation is necessary because of the predicament of alienation. Okay, so that's kind of a teeing up the review and looking at it. Let's talk about the second part and some representatives, some representatives. Paul gives us two representatives in the second half of the chapter. And, and here's what you can think in terms of two columns. And uh, there are characteristics of those in the first column given, characteristics of those in the second column, but each column has a representative. And the representative actually is the leader of the columns. Okay, so you follow along. See if you can discern the two representatives as I read beginning in verse 12 of chapter 5. Now, I'll tell you right up front, it's a pretty dense, complicated section. But the main themes are pretty clear. So here we go. Therefore, so everything he's been saying in 1 through 11 is now the background to what he's going to write in verse 12. Therefore... Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even though those who did not sin by breaking a commandment, as Adam did, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and, and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, 
So also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Told you it was complicated. All right, here we go. Two columns, two representatives. Let's see if we can look at some characteristics of the one column. Well, if you look at verses six through uh, eight, you kind of see the characteristics. So here we go. You see, at just the right time when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now in those verses, there are four words that characterize the one column. And here they are. Powerless. Powerless. We're in that predicament and can do nothing about it and can't get out of it. Secondly, we're ungodly. The prefix un means not. So for example, if it's unfair, it's not fair. If she's unfriendly, she's not friendly. If you're unhappy, because you've got to listen to sermon, you're not happy. Well, if you're ungodly, you're nothing like God. So God's holy and just, and we're none of those things. God's loving and gracious and kind. We're none of that stuff. So what God is, we're not. That's ungodly. Then we're sinners, continually missing the mark, and enemies of God. That's the problem. Now, I know some, some of you like to watch him. Um, Old movies of kingdoms in the past. Two kings vying for a new kingdom. Or maybe you have two kings laying claim to the same throne. What do you have if you have two kings laying claim to the same throne? You've got a war. How does the war end? One of the kings dies. That's how it ends. The stronger king defeats the other king. And then the king who won the day claims the throne and gets the throne. Do you see the weirdness of the story? Here we are, and we're all kind of, we start life in that column. We are ungodly, powerless, sinner, and enemy of God. That's our column. But the powerful, righteous God king is the king that dies so that those of us with that resume can actually now live in stewardship to the rightful king. That's kind of a weird twist to the story, right? If anything, we the rebellious kings laying claim to the throne that God rightfully owns and should hold, we aren't defeated and killed through a gift of God. We can live because the ultimate king died so that we can return to our position as stewards and live under the king. That's incredible, right? That's why you got the but God in the middle of the chapter. While we were still enemies, Jesus died for us. So when you think about reconciliation, think of the characteristics of our column. Powerless, ungodly, sinners who are enemies of God. While we were in that column, Jesus gives his life for us so that we can trade columns. That's amazing. We can trade that resume with those four characteristics and get the resume that Jesus lived, which is perfection. 
That's in a nutshell the gospel. Well, who is then the representative of that fourfold negative column? Well, Paul tells us his name is Adam. Adam. And it says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that would be Adam, death through sin, and the way death came to all people because all sin. See, Adam is that first representative of the column. Now, how many of you, now be honest, how many of you lose things ra rather regularly? Yeah, I, I do too. Usually in my mind, right? Yeah, I lose stuff. Now, what do you do when you lose stuff? Well, my natural reaction is, Kim, what did you do with my phone? That's my first reaction. Uh, my second, oh, yeah, kids don't live here anymore. I thought they took my phone. How come I can't find it? But when I come to a more sober moment, I say, okay, here's what I do. Let me retrace my steps because I probably lost it along the way. And inevitably, as I retrace my steps, I usually find what I lost because I didn't really lose it. I just stuck it there and thought I had it when I left. That's what Paul's doing. So Paul says, hey, guys, we lost some stuff. If, if the characteristics of the column are powerlessness, ungodliness, sinfulness, and enemies of God, we lost stuff. How in the world we get in that column? Retrace your steps, go back to where all that stuff was lost, and let's look at it. Well, that's what he does. So Paul says, okay, the first guy in a column, his name was Adam. And Adam decided to disobey God's directions rather than follow through with what God said. And that set the tenor and the start of the whole column. Um, now, how did that happen? Adam had some help in that. You see, there's an enemy in the story. And the enemy is trying to deceive. The enemy is tempting. It's kind of like hunting. We have some members of Calvary Church right now that are out west hunting. They're hunting for deer, mule deer, whitetail. They're hunting for elk. Um, do you know how you hunt for elk? I'm not much of a hunter, but I'll explain the process to you because you need to know this. It'll help you understand Romans 5. Here's how it works. The first thing you do is you, it takes months, weeks, and days of meticulous planning. You can't just show up to hunt. You got to prepare to hunt. Well, and then when it's almost time, the first thing you need to do before you go elk hunting is you need to not bathe for many days. That's why men like to go, right? You don't have to bathe for a while. Um, and then right before you're ready to go out hunting, you spray elk urine all over your body. That's why women never go elk hunting, right? And you do that because elk must love the smell of elk urine, I guess, because it somehow brings them in, right? Then you don't go careening into the woods, making lots of noise, screaming and yelling, laughing it up with your buddies. You sneak into the woods and you find your little, little hideaway and you bugle for the elk. You blow on a little bugle, a little elk call. Um, the best elk call is called a hoochie mama call. Uh, that's real, by the way, because elks, the big male elks, they like a hoochie mama. So you blow your hoochie mama call, which the elk says, uh-oh, and the elk comes looking for the hoochie mama, right? And then when the elk's close enough, or if you're a good enough shot, you drill them, right? And now you have food for the winter. That's kind of how it works. Um, now, when you get that meat home, it winds up costing about $750 a pound, uh, which isn't a bad deal, but your family can eat for the winter, right? See how that works? Now, that's what the enemy does to set the first Adam up. You see, here's how the story happened. God puts Adam in this beautiful garden, and God says, hey, Adam, by the way, 
I put all this variety of food in front of you. You can eat whatever you want. So you want to go eat to your heart's content. Oh, yeah, by the way, there's one tree. Don't eat from that one tree because I said so. Don't eat from that tree. Eat from all the other trees. Well, the enemy sneaks in, and here's the hoochie mama call. Did God really say you can't eat from any of these trees? What kind of a God would do that? That's not what God said. That's the hoochie mama call, right? Here's what it's saying. You can't trust a God like that. A God like that would put you in front of all of this giant smorgasbord full of food and tell you you can't eat any of it? What's the enemy trying to do? The enemy's trying to get the first Adam to doubt God's goodness because he knows if he can doubt God's goodness, disobeying God's directions is the next step away. In fact, when you doubt God's goodness, you will disobey God's directions. It only makes sense, doesn't it? If you don't think that God has your best interest in mind, you don't think that God's looking out for you, you don't think that God really cares or loves you, why in the world would you follow his directions if you think that God's whole mission is to make your life miserable? You never would. So when you doubt God's goodness, you're, oh, I better follow my own direction because if I follow God's direction, my life will be miserable. It also works the other way. I'd be willing to bet, based on what the scripture says, you have never disobeyed God's directions without first doubting God's goodness. If you really thought that God is good and God's loving and kind, he's all powerful and wants the best for you, you would do what that loving, caring, sovereign God called you to do. But when you doubt his goodness, you have to disobey his directions. That's what the enemy does. Adam falls for it. And I'm saying, yeah, that's right. I guess that's right. So I better take my life into my own hands. I better make my own decisions and I'll do that by disobeying God's directions. And what are the consequences of that? Powerlessness, ungodliness, sinners, sinfulness, and our enemies and rebels against God. And we relive that story over and over again. When your kids were little, or maybe when you were little, maybe I'd say four or five years old, suppose you were to ask a four-year-old little girl, could you drive your mommy's car? Sure I can. I can drive better than daddy. I know that. Mommy's always yelling at how daddy drives. How do you drive? Well, you get in there, you hit these couple buttons, you grab the wheel, and you go. If you give the four-year-old the keys to your car, give them a little key fob, start it for them, you, they will recapitulate the fall from Genesis 3. As they go onto the highway, there'll be death and destruction in their wake. That's what happened in Genesis 3. Adam assumed a seat, a throne that he was unable to live in, unable to fulfill, and all hell breaks loose, and we've been reaping the consequences ever since. And you know what the really hard part for me to understand? You know, people sometimes say, Adam's such an idiot. Why did he do that? Here's a really more moronic tale. Why do we continue to do it? I can understand why Adam did it. He didn't, have whole much, he didn't have much of God's story in his mind. We've got a lot more data than Adam had. We relive that story every day. God gives us directions. We don't follow the directions because we doubt that God has our best in mind and we go off our own way. Happens all the time. That's how temptation works. With the results that now those four characteristics of the column are true of every one of us. We're in a predicament that we're powerless to get out of. That's the story. But that's not the end of the story because there's a second Adam. 
Not Adam Sandler. He's the funniest Adam, but he's not not Adam Levine. He's he's an annoying Sandler, Adam. (laughs) Not even Adam West, the real Batman. It wasn't even that guy. The second Adam is Jesus. Now, you know anything? Why in the world does Paul call him Adam? His name's Jesus. God said, call the baby Jesus. God didn't say call him Adam number two. Yeah, but Jesus is the other representative. Adam represents everybody in the column. And as as their representative, he transmits all the consequence to them. Jesus is the second Adam, the second representative. And you can be connected to that Adam. So picture this scene. The first Adam... Adam of Genesis fame, he starts climbing the mountain, right? And along, a whole bunch of people come after him, after he kind of screws up, and they're, they're all carabinered to him, right? So they're all climbing, and they're all carabinered to him. Jesus comes along, and he's climbing up the mountain, and as God's gift, he says, you can be carabinered to him. Everybody who's carabined to Adam, if Adam falls off the mountain, they're all falling with him because they're connected to him. But Jesus climbs, and you can be carabinered to him. And as he climbs, he never falls. So if you carabiner to Jesus, you don't fall off the mountain. You make it, you climb with him. It may be tough sledding. It may be a little arduous and strenuous at times, but you may, he makes it to the top, and everybody carabined to him makes it to the top too. That's the picture. Jesus, the second Adam, the second representative. Only two representatives. And you are represented by one or the other. That's the picture. Now, I know I'm saying this and some of you are sitting there. I don't like this. I don't like this. I'm a rugged individualist American. I don't have any representative that I don't vote for. Huh, is that right? So let's talk about representation and how that works. Um, I'm going to ask you a question you need to answer very vocally. All right, just, did we win the Super Bowl Yes, we did. Let me ask you, did we win the Super Bowl or what? Yes. Uh, now, how many of you actually went onto the field that day? Any of you get suited up? Did any of you throw a pass, catch a pass, run? Huh. You didn't tackle anybody. Huh. Well, how in the world did we win a You see, we sent those big, fast guys to play as our representatives, right? We pay the cable charge, the pay their salaries. We go visit once in a while. We bear the, you know, we buy the paraphernalia. We pay them to be our representatives. And when they won, we say, we won. They're our representatives. Do you ever, have you ever disagreed or not liked a trade or, you know, a call that, um, that an Eagles coach has ever, anybody ever not like one of the calls? Huh. They didn't call and ask you your opinion, did they? You see, your representative can kind of do what they want, but they, re- they do what they think is best, but they represent you as they do it. Uh, how about this one? How many of you were born into a family and you bear some of the consequences of being born in that family? Yeah, every one of us, right? Uh, you do realize some of you were born into families that are really wealthy. Maybe you're born into a family that owns a business. You hit the family lottery. You did nothing to earn any of that, but you bear the consequence of being born into that family, right? Some of you were born into families that are highly dysfunctional and are all messed. Well, you didn't earn that. You didn't choose to be in that. You don't get a vote, do you? You're just kind of born into the family. Here's another one. Question. How many of you are in a union, one way or another? Labor union, administrative union, teachers union? Yeah. You all have union representatives. 
And when it's time to negotiate a new contract, they don't call all the union members into the office and negotiate together. The union reps negotiate with the company. And again, you elect the reps, but their decisions actually affect every union member. And the contract is cut and negotiated by the representatives, not by all the union members. Well, how fair is that? That's how it works. We're all going to vote on Tuesday. I hope you all vote, by the way. We have elected officials. In fact, we will be voting for our representatives, the House of Representatives. Question, how many of you have ever disagreed with the decision that your representative ever made? Raise your hand. Yeah, good. You don't understand what they voted for then if you didn't. Uh, yeah, but when they make a decision, we live with the consequences, right? So here's the reality. If our political representatives vote to go to war, we're at war. If they vote taxes are going up, we pay more tax. If they vote for this sanction, against that thing, we are all affected. Our representatives affect our lives. How many of you have ever had to go into a courtroom and you had a lawyer? Raise your hand. Oh, don't, oh, I don't want to know the story. Don't tell me the story. Now I'll think about it all day. Wonder what you all did. But when you go into a courtroom, your attorney is your representative. See, so here's how it works. If your attorney is eloquent and polished, you are eloquent and polished. If your, attorney, if your attorney is an idiot, you're going to prison, right? Because you and your attorney are one in the eyes of the court. So even though we may not like this idea of representation, we live in a world of representation and the biblical world and lots of parts of the world today has kind of representation on overdrive. Most of what we have, most of what we deal with comes because our representatives have made decisions or done things that we live with the consequences. So the whole point of Romans 5 is Adam is every human's representative from the get-go. And you may say, well, I wouldn't have made those choices. You make the same choices every day. You live out and recapitulate Adam's rebellion every day. You doubt God's goodness. You disobey his directions all the time. But God offers by grace another representative. God says you can take the carabiner of your life and you can attach it to Jesus Christ and he never falls from the face of the mountain. So all that are only carabinered to Adam will fall from the mountain, but those carabinered to Jesus will make it to the top just as he made it to the top. And the resurrection of Jesus that we started the service with this morning reminds us that Jesus, the powerful, perfect, glorious representative, gets all connected to him by grace through faith to the top of the mountain. I was going to end there. I thought, I really can't end there. That's kind of where the chapter ends, though. Yeah, but the problem is that's not the end of Romans. It's the end of Romans 5. It's not the end of Romans. And, you know, again, they would have read Romans all the way through, and Paul gets somewhere else, but I don't want to leave you kind of there. Or you may begin to think, oh, so we just kind of hang out, carabiner to Jesus, enjoy the ride home. No, it doesn't happen that way. Let me show you. In verse 11... Uh, well, actually, if we go back one, how do we continue what Jesus, the point is we continue. We're not end users, we continue it. So let me show you. In verse 11, we read about reconciliation. So here's what it says. Not only is this so, 
But we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So where there was alienation with God, ourselves, others in the world, we can now have reconciliation. But that's not the end of the story. In another letter to, to the Corinthian church, Paul wrote about reconciliation. And here's what he wrote there. There. All this is from God. This would actually be a good verse to kind of end Romans 5, too. And Paul wrote them both. Here's what he writes. All this is from God. The problem that we've gotten into, the solution that Jesus brings, and the benefits that come. All those benefits are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Jesus and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You see, we don't hoard reconciliation. We extend and live reconciliation. So here's what that means, husbands and wives. We need to be living reconciliation with spouses before our children, neighbors, co-workers, family, and friends. In our families, we need to be living reconciliation and paying the price that comes along with extending it. In the workplace, there are people that slander and offend and take credit and you're kind of on the outs with them. We need to live reconciliation. We've been given this as a ministry, not to hoard reconciliation, but to live reconciliation. That's how we continue what Jesus started. We experience reconciliation with God and we extend and live reconciliation in the network of relationships that God has put us in. That's why we say with your neighbors and friends, coworkers, family members, live out the gospel. Pay the price for reconciliation and reunited living to be generated. Invite those people to come with you, hang out with them, share the story and live the story of reconciliation. That is how we continue what Jesus started. Let's stand and pray. Father, we confess that is a pretty incredible story. If we're going to step back and put our minds in overdrive, we realize that the descriptors of those in the first Adam's column are true of us. We're powerless, and sometimes the reminders of powerlessness shake our lives. We're ungodly. We're not loving, caring, giving, generous. We're none of those things. We're sinners. As much as we may try, we miss the mark. We disobey the directions because we doubt that you're really good and have our best interest in mind. Lord, we're your enemies. Those were all true characteristics of us. But it's incredible to think that Jesus, the second Adam, trades resumes with us. And he takes those four characteristics that deserve condemnation and he paid every ounce of it and then he gives us his resume of commendation and says, you share these benefits, but don't hoard it. Extend it and live out that message before others. Continue what I started and what Jesus started is reconciliation. Lord, help us to... Be reminded of that, realigned with that, and faithful to live that out every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.